Day 6 of Totus Tuus's Novena, with quotes from Pope John Paul II's encyclical, Fides et Ratio. The Church has no philosophy of her own, nor does she canonize any one particular philosophy and preference to others. The underlying reason for this reluctance is that, even when it engages theology, philosophy must remain faithful to its own principles and methods. Otherwise, there would be no guarantee that it would remain oriented to truth, and that it was moving towards truth by way of a process governed by reason. A philosophy which did not proceed in the light of reason, according to its own principles and methods, would serve little purpose. At the deepest level, the autonomy which philosophy enjoys is rooted in the fact that reason is by its nature oriented to truth and is equipped, moreover, with the means necessary to arrive at truth. A philosophy conscious of this as its constitutive status cannot but respect the demands and the data of revealed truth. Yet history shows that philosophy, especially modern philosophy, has taken wrong turns and fallen into error. It is neither the task nor the competence of the magisterium to intervene in order to make good the lacunas of deficient philosophical discourse. Rather, it is the magisterium's duty to respond clearly and strongly when controversial philosophical opinions threaten right understanding of what has been revealed, and when false and partial theories which sow the seed of serious error, confusing the pure and simple faith of the people of God, begin to spread more widely. In the light of faith, therefore, the Church's magisterium can and must authoritatively exercise a critical discernment of opinions and philosophies which contradict Christian doctrine. It is the task of the magisterium in the first place to indicate which philosophical presuppositions and conclusions are incompatible with revealed truth, thus articulating the demands which faith's point of view makes of philosophy. Moreover, as philosophical learning has developed, different schools of thought have emerged. This pluralism also imposes upon the magisterium the responsibility of expressing a judgment as to whether or not the basic tenets of these different schools are compatible with the demands of the Word of God and theological inquiry. It is the Church's duty to indicate the elements in a philosophical system which are incompatible with her own faith. In fact, many philosophical opinions concerning God the human being, human freedom and ethical behavior, engage the Church directly because they touch on the revealed truth of which she is the guardian. In making this discernment, we bishops have the duty to be witnesses to the truth, fulfilling a humble but tenacious ministry of service which every philosopher should appreciate, a service in favor of recta ratio, or of reason reflecting rightly upon what is true. This discernment, however, should not be seen as primarily negative, as if the magisterium intended to abolish or limit any possible mediation. On the contrary, the magisterium's interventions are intended above all to prompt, promote, and encourage philosophical inquiry. Besides, philosophers are the first to understand the need for self-criticism, the correction of errors, and the extension of the two restricted terms in which their thinking has been framed. In particular, it is necessary to keep in mind the unity of truth. 
even if its formulations are shaped by history and produced by human reason, wounded and weakened by sin. This is why no historical form of philosophy can legitimately claim to embrace the totality of truth, nor to be the complete explanation of the human being, of the world, and of the human being's relationship with God. Today then, with the proliferation of systems, methods, concepts, and philosophical theses, which are often extremely complex, the need for a critical discernment in the light of faith becomes more urgent, even if it remains a daunting task. Given all of reason's inherent and historical limitations, it is difficult enough to recognize the inalienable powers proper to it, but it is still more difficult, at times, to discern in specific philosophical claims what is valid and fruitful from faith's point of view, and what is mistaken or dangerous. Yet the Church knows that the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, and therefore intervenes in order to stimulate philosophical inquiry, lest it stray from the path which leads to recognition of the mystery. It is not only in recent times that the Magisterium of the Church has intervened to make its mind known with regard to particular philosophical teachings. It is enough to recall, by way of example, the pronouncements made through the centuries concerning theories which argued in favour of the pre-existence of the soul, or concerning the different forms of idolatry and esoteric superstition found in astrological speculations, without forgetting the more systematic pronouncements against certain claims of Latin Averroism, which were incompatible with the Christian faith. If the Magisterium has spoken out more frequently since the middle of the last century, it is because in that period not a few Catholics felt it their duty to counter various streams of modern thought with a philosophy of their own. At this point, the Magisterium of the Church was obliged to be vigilant, lest these philosophies developed in ways which were themselves erroneous and negative. The censures were delivered even-handedly. On the one hand, fideism and radical traditionalism for their distrust of reason's natural capacities and, on the other, rationalism and ontologism because they attributed to natural reason a knowledge which only the light of faith could confer. The positive elements of this debate were assembled in the dogmatic constitution Dei Filius in which for the first time an ecumenical council, in this case the First Vatican Council, pronounced solemnly on the relationship between reason and faith. The teaching contained in this document strongly and positively marked the philosophical research of many believers and remains today a standard reference point for correct and coherent Christian thinking in this regard. The Magisterium's pronouncements have been concerned less with individual philosophical theses than with a need for rational and hence ultimately philosophical knowledge the understanding of faith. In synthesizing and solemnly reaffirming the teachings constantly proposed to the faithful by the ordinary papal magisterium, the First Vatican Council showed how inseparable and at the same time how distinct were faith and reason, revelation and natural knowledge of God. The Council began with the basic criterion, presupposed by revelation itself of the natural knowability of the existence of God, the beginning and end of all things, and concluded with a solemn assertion quoted earlier. There are two orders of knowledge, 
distinct not only in their point of departure, but also their object. Against all forms of rationalism, then, there was a need to affirm the distinction between the mysteries of faith and the findings of philosophy, and the transcendence and precedence of the mysteries of faith over the findings of philosophy. Against the temptations of fideism, however, it was necessary to stress the unity of truth and thus the positive contribution which rational knowledge can and must make to faith's knowledge. Even if faith is superior to reason, there can never be a true divergence between faith and reason, since the same God who reveals the mysteries and bestows the gift of faith has also placed in the human spirit the light of reason. This God could not deny himself, nor could the truth ever contradict the truth. In our own century, too, the Magisterium has revisited the theme on a number of occasions, warning against the lure of rationalism. Here, the pronouncements of Pope St. Pius X are pertinent, stressing as they did that at the basis of modernism were philosophical claims which were phenomenist, agnostic and immanentist. Nor can the importance of the Catholic rejection of Marxist philosophy and atheistic communism be forgotten. Later, in his encyclical letter, Humani Generis, Pope Pius XII warned against mistaken interpretations linked to evolutionism, existentialism, and historicism. He made it clear that these theories had not been proposed and developed by theologians, but had their origins outside the sheepfold of Christ. He added, however, that errors of this kind should not simply be rejected, but should be examined critically. Catholic theologians and philosophers, whose grave duty it is to defend natural and supernatural truth and instill it in human hearts, cannot afford to ignore these more or less erroneous opinions. Rather, they must come to understand these theories well, not only because diseases are properly treated only if rightly diagnosed, and because even in these false theories some truth is found at times, but because in the end, these theories provoke a more discriminating discussion and evaluation of philosophical and theological truths. In accomplishing its specific task in service of the Roman Pontiff's Universal Magisterium, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith has more recently had to intervene to re-emphasize the danger of an uncritical adoption by some liberation theologians of opinions and methods drawn from Marxism. In the past, then, the Magisterium has on different occasions and in different ways offered its discernment in philosophical matters. My revered predecessors have thus made an invaluable contribution which must not be forgotten. Surveying the situation today, we see that the problems of our times have returned, but in a new key. It is no longer a matter of questions of interest only to certain individuals and groups, but convictions so widespread that they have become, to some extent, the common mind. An example of this is the deep-seated distrust of reason, which has surfaced in the most recent developments of much of philosophical research, to the point where there is talk at times of the end of metaphysics. Philosophy is expected to rest content with more modest tasks, such as the simple interpretation of facts, or an inquiry into restricted fields of human knowing or its structures.
in theology too, the temptations of other times have reappeared. In some contemporary theologies, for instance, a certain rationalism is gaining ground, especially when opinions thought to be philosophically well-founded are taken as normative for theological research. This happens particularly when theologians, through lack of philosophical competence, allow themselves to be swayed uncritically by assertions which have become part of current parlance and culture, but which are poorly grounded in reason. There are also signs of resurgence of fideism, which fails to recognize the importance of rational knowledge and philosophical discourse for the understanding of faith, indeed for the very possibility of belief in God. One currently widespread symptom of this fideistic tendency is a biblicism, which tends to make the reading and exegesis of sacred scripture the sole criterion of truth. In consequence, the word of God is identified with sacred scripture alone, thus eliminating the doctrine of the church, which the Second Vatican Council stressed quite specifically. Having recalled that the word of God is present in both scripture and tradition, the Constitution Dei Verbum continues emphatically, Sacred tradition and sacred scripture comprise a single sacred deposit of the word of God entrusted to the church. Embracing this deposit and united with their pastors, the people of God remain always faithful to the teaching of the apostles. Scripture, therefore, is not the church's sole point of reference. The supreme rule of her faith derives from the unity which the Spirit has created between sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the Church, in a reciprocity which means that none of the three can survive without the others. Moreover, one should not underestimate the danger inherent in seeking to derive the truth of sacred scripture from the use of one method alone, ignoring the need for a more comprehensive exegesis which enables the exegete, together with the whole church, to arrive at the full sense of the texts. Those who devote themselves to the study of sacred scripture should always remember that the various hermeneutical approaches have their own philosophical underpinnings, which need to be carefully evaluated before they are applied to the sacred texts. Other modes of latent fideism appear in the scant consideration accorded to speculative theology and in disdain for the classical philosophy from which the terms of both the understanding of faith and the actual formulation of dogma have been drawn. My revered predecessor, Pope Pius XII, warned against such neglect of the philosophical tradition and against abandonment of the traditional terminology. In brief, there are signs of a widespread distrust of universal and absolute statements especially among those who think that truth is born of consensus and not of a consonance between intellect and objective reality. In a world subdivided into so many specialized fields, it is not hard to see how difficult it can be to acknowledge the full and ultimate meaning of life, which has traditionally been the goal of philosophy. Nonetheless, in the light of faith, which finds in Jesus Christ this ultimate meaning, I cannot but encourage philosophers, be they Christian or not, to trust in the power of human reason and not to set themselves goals that are too modest in their philosophizing. The lesson of history in this millennium now drawing to a close 
shows that this is the path to follow. It is necessary not to abandon the passion for ultimate truth, the eagerness to search for it, or the audacity to forge new paths in the search. It is faith which stirs reason to move beyond all isolation, and willingly to run risks so that it may attain whatever is beautiful, good and true. Faith thus becomes the convinced and convincing advocate of reason. Yet the Magisterium does more than point out the misperceptions and the mistakes of philosophical theories. With no less concern, it has sought to stress the basic principles of a genuine renewal of philosophical inquiry, indicating as well particular paths to be taken. In this regard, Pope Leo XIII, with his encyclical letter, Eterni Patris, took a step of historic importance for the life of the Church, since it remains to this day the one papal document of such authority, devoted entirely to philosophy. The great Pope revisited and developed the First Vatican Council's teaching on the relationship between faith and reason, showing how philosophical thinking contributes in fundamental ways to faith and theological learning. More than a century later, many of the insights of his encyclical letter have lost none of their interest from either a practical or a pedagogical point of view. Most particularly, his insistence upon the incomparable value of the philosophy of St. Thomas. A renewed insistence upon the thought of the angelic doctor seemed to Pope Leo XIII the best way to recover the practice of a philosophy consonant with the demands of faith. Just when St. Thomas distinguishes perfectly between faith and reason, the Pope writes, he unites them in bonds of mutual friendship conceding to each its specific rights and to each its specific dignity. The positive results of the papal summons are well known. Studies of the thought of St. Thomas and other scholastic writers received new impetus. Historical studies flourished, resulting in a rediscovery of the riches of medieval thought, which until then had been largely unknown. And there emerged new Thomistic schools, with the use of historical method, knowledge of the works of St. Thomas increased greatly, and many scholars had courage enough to introduce Thomistic tradition into the philosophical and theological discussions of the day. The most influential Catholic theologians of the present century, to whose thinking and research the Second Vatican Council was much indebted, were products of this revival of Thomistic philosophy. Throughout the 20th century, the Church has been served by a powerful array of thinkers formed in the school of the Angelic Doctor. Yet the Thomistic and Neo-Thomistic revival was not the only sign of a resurgence of philosophical thought in culture of Christian inspiration. Earlier still, and parallel to Pope Leo's call, there had emerged a number of Catholic philosophers who, adopting more recent currents of thought and according to a specific method, produced philosophical works of great influence and lasting value. Some devised syntheses so remarkable that they stood comparison with the great systems of idealism. Others established epistemological foundations for a new consideration of faith in the light of a renewed understanding of moral consciousness. Others again produced a philosophy which, starting with an analysis of eminence,
opened the way to the transcendent. And there were finally those who sought to combine the demands of faith with a perspective of phenomenological method. From different quarters, then, modes of philosophical speculation have continued to emerge and have sought to keep alive the great tradition of Christian thought which unites faith and reason. The Second Vatican Council, for its part, offers a rich and fruitful teaching concerning philosophy. I cannot fail to note, especially in the context of this encyclical letter, that one chapter of the Constitution, Gaudium et Spes, amounts to a virtual compendium of the biblical anthropology from which philosophy too can draw inspiration. The chapter deals with the value of the human person created in the image of God, explains the dignity and superiority of the human being over the rest of creation, and declares the transcendent capacity of human reason. The problem of atheism is also dealt with in Gaudium et Spes, and the flaws of its philosophical vision are identified, especially in relation to the dignity and freedom of the human person. There is no doubt that the climactic section of the chapter is profoundly significant for philosophy, and it was this which I took up in my first encyclical letter, Redemptor Hominis, and which served as one of the constant reference points of my teaching. The truth is that only in the mystery of the Incarnate Word does the mystery of man take on light. For Adam, the first man, was a type of him who was to come, Christ the Lord. Christ, the new Adam, in the very revelation of the mystery of the Father and of his love, fully reveals man to himself and brings to light his most high calling. The Council also dealt with the study of philosophy required of its candidates for the priesthood and its recommendations have implications for Christian education as a whole. These are the Council's words. The philosophical disciplines should be taught in such a way that students acquire in the first place a solid and harmonious knowledge of the human being, of the world and of God, based upon the philosophical heritage which is enduringly valid, yet taking into account currents of modern philosophy. These directives have been reiterated and developed in a number of other magisterial documents in order to guarantee a solid philosophical formation, especially for those preparing for theological studies. I have myself emphasized several times the importance of this philosophical formation for those who one day, in their pastoral life, will have to address the aspirations of the contemporary world and understand the causes of certain behavior in order to respond in appropriate ways. If it has been necessary from time to time to intervene on this question, to reiterate the value of the angelic doctor's insights and insist on the study of his thought, this has been because the magisterium's directives have not always been followed with the readiness one would wish. In the years after the Second Vatican Council, many Catholic faculties were in some ways impoverished by a diminished sense of the importance of the study, not just of scholastic philosophy, but more generally of the study of philosophy itself. 
I cannot fail to note with surprise and displeasure that this lack of interest in the study of philosophy is shared by not a few theologians. There are various reasons for this disenchantment. First, there is the distrust of reason found in much contemporary philosophy, which has largely abandoned metaphysical study of the ultimate human questions in order to concentrate upon problems which are more detailed and restricted, at times even purely formal. Another reason, it should be said, is the misunderstanding which has arisen especially with regard to the human sciences. On a number of occasions, the Second Vatican Council stressed the positive value of scientific research for a deeper knowledge of the history of the human being. But the invitation addressed to theologians to engage the human sciences and apply them properly in their inquiries should not be interpreted as an implicit authorization to marginalize philosophy or to put something else in its place in pastoral formation and in the preparatio fidei. A further factor is the renewed interest in the inculturation of faith. The life of the young churches in particular has brought to light, together with sophisticated modes of thinking, an array of expressions of popular wisdom. And this constitutes a genuine cultural wealth of traditions. Yet the study of traditional ways must go hand in hand with the philosophical inquiry, an inquiry which will allow the positive traits of popular wisdom to emerge and forge the necessary link with the proclamation of the gospel. I wish to repeat clearly that the study of philosophy is fundamental and indispensable to the structure of theological studies and to the formation of candidates for the priesthood. It is not by chance that the curriculum of theological studies is preceded by a time of special study of philosophy. This decision, confirmed by the Fifth Lateran Council, is rooted in the experience which matured through the Middle Ages, when the importance of a constructive harmony of philosophical and theological learning emerged. This ordering of studies influenced, promoted and enabled much of the development of modern philosophy, albeit indirectly. One telling example of this is the influence of the Disputantes Metaphysicae of Francisco Suarez, which found its way even into the Lutheran universities of Germany. Conversely, the dismantling of this arrangement has created serious gaps in both priestly formation and theological research. Consider, for instance, the disregard of modern thought and culture, which has led either to refusal of any kind of dialogue or to an indiscriminate acceptance of any kind of philosophy. I trust most sincerely that these difficulties will be overcome by an intelligent philosophical and theological formation, which must never be lacking in the Church. For the reasons suggested here, it has seemed to me urgent to re-emphasize with this encyclical letter the Church's intense interest in philosophy. Indeed, the intimate bond which ties theological work to the philosophical search for truth. From this comes the Magisterium's duty to discern and promote philosophical thinking which is not at odds with faith. It is my task to state principles and criteria which in my judgment are necessary in order to restore a harmonious and creative relationship between theology and philosophy. In the light of these principles and criteria, it will be possible to discern with greater clarity what link, if any, 
theology should forge with the different philosophical opinions and systems which the world of today presents. Let us pray. Grant me, O Lord my God, a mind to know you, a heart to seek you, wisdom to find you, conduct pleasing to you, faithful perseverance in waiting for you, and a hope of finally embracing you. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.